in a dance all day. Hey, this is Jack Hughes. We were cool on crazy. When I, you, and everyone we knew. And you're listening to Play That Rock and Roll. Sharing what was true, I said. Dance all day long. Listen to a really good song, I start nodding my head like I'm saying yes to every beat. Yes, 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 this rocks. And then sometimes I switch it up like, no, 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 don't stop a rocking. Dad, please, you're embarrassing us. No, I'm not. I'm teaching you about rock music. Now, Grand Funk Railroad paved the way for Jefferson Airplane, which cleared the way for Jefferson Starship. The stage was now set for the Alan Parsons Project, which I believe was some sort of hovercraft. Dad, no one cares about any of your stupid dinosaur bands. You have the worst, lamest taste in music ever. This is not a test. This is Play That Rock and Roll. I'm your host, Joseph K., and like the song at the start says, just call me Joe. I gotta say, Bart, it's a little harsh. <laughs> it's not the worst music taste ever. But yes, Jefferson Airplane did pave the way for Jefferson Starship, and I talked a little bit about that in the last podcast that was just me here solo. And we are going to continue the series we started on that episode with this one today. This is the second of a three-part series that looks at all major aspects of the Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship, and Starship, what I call the Jefferson Airplane family tree. Today, we'll focus on Jefferson Starship, and also some solo records from founding members Paul Kantner, Grace Slick, and Marty Ballin. Now, as we talked about in the last episode, Jefferson Starship is made up primarily of a couple of ex-airplane members. Hence, the family tree connection. The core of Jefferson Starship is Paul Kantner, Grace Slick, David Freiberg, Marty Balin, Craig Chikeso, and later on, Mickey Thomas. So there's some fundamental differences between the Jefferson Airplane and the Jefferson Starship. The Jefferson Airplane was much more a cultural moment. They basically represented the whole San Francisco peace and love rock scene. And although they did have some big hits, they were definitely more interested in chasing their muse and making music for the hippies and sort of being that band for that time. And they were very good at it. But by the early 70s, this formula had basically worn itself out and the personality conflicts in the band became too much for the band to sustain itself. As we will talk about through this whole episode, the Jefferson Starship didn't have those goals. The Jefferson Starship had different goals at different times, but the primary motivator was to generate just enough commercial success to keep the band on the radio and selling records and getting fans to come to see shows. Sustainability was the priority for Jefferson Starship. They weren't complete sellouts like we'll talk about in the final episode of this Jefferson Airplane Family Tree series we're doing, but they weren't trying to be the big cultural icons they were in the 60s. 
So the idea for Jefferson Starship began in Paul Kantner's solo career. As we talked about last time, his album Blows Against the Empire was credited to Paul Kantner and Jefferson Starship, even though at that time Jefferson Starship was not a band. Although several people who worked on that album would later become Jefferson Starship, (laughs) gets a little confusing. But when Paul was putting the band together, he definitely wanted to work with some of the people who had been in the airplane. Now, as we talked about last time, Yorma Kakaunen and Jack Cassidy were doing Hot Tuna full-time. And Paul also didn't really want to work with those guys at that point. That was part of the conflict in the band. Those guys weren't getting along. Paul and Grace were both doing solo albums, but those solo albums weren't selling. And that was frustrating their label. Their label wanted them to be in a band. Paul was open to it because he wanted to go on tour. Grace wanted to be in a band and since she and Paul were in a relationship she told Paul whatever you come up with I'm on board so the core for this new band would be Paul Grace David Freiberg and guitarist Craig Jacaso those are two of the guys that worked with Paul and Grace on their solo albums so the actual debut album for the Jefferson Starship was called Dragonfly and was released in September 1974 the only single from the album was called Ride the Tiger which was sang by Paul. It hit 84 on the Billboard charts, so not a big hit. And not a particularly impressive song. One of the more interesting songs on the album is called Caroline, and that's interesting because it was sang by someone who was not yet a member of the band. Their old friend, Marty Ballin, popped into the recording sessions as he had stayed on good terms with Paul and delivered that song for them. And I think Paul and Grace were sort of courting him to join the band full-time because they probably knew that Paul wasn't up for being the front man. And that's also why I'm not really a fan of this album. For all his talents, Paul is not a particularly good front man. He's a visionary, he's a great songwriter, but he's not a great lead vocalist. And of the whole Jefferson Starship discography, this is the album that does the least for me. Thankfully, they got Marty to sign on full-time for their second album, Red Octopus, which was released in June 1975. Marty hesitantly joined as a full-time member, but he signed on because he was happy that Jack and Yorma were now out of the picture, and those guys, when they were in the airplane together, were pretty merciless and bullied him quite a bit because they did not like the sort of love songs that Marty often brought to the band. Now, Marty had some other problems with the other band members. He did not like that he was always overshadowed by Grace, and he did not like how extremely indulgent all of them were on drugs and how that affected their performances. But those concerns weren't enough for him to turn the band down, and his choice was validated when he scored a big top 10 hit single with a song called Miracles. Take a listen to this. Miracles was a number three hit, and if you listen to the podcast Beyond Yacht Rock, or if you've seen the internet series Yacht Rock, those guys love this song. <laughs> they, they would call this very smooth. I don't think this is Yacht Rock, but this is that sort of smooth music that they like. I gotta say, it doesn't do a whole lot for me. But I can definitely agree with them in the sense that 
this sort of soft rock crooning is definitely Marty's strength. So the Jefferson Starship was already bringing out Marty's best. And this kind of song was something he could really only do now because Yorma and Jack were not in the band anymore. Now he had the freedom to write and record the music he wanted to do without being bullied or argued with about it. Grace and Paul were supportive of Marty's songwriting at this point. Now, of course, Marty was very happy to have a hit, but for a long time he would lament that radio DJs would play the song and then introduce it as Grace Slick and Jefferson Starship. And right away, all his old resentments about Grace come back into the picture. Grace had a minor hit on this album called Play On Love. That hit number 49 on the charts. This song has some big vocals from Grace, which is definitely what I prefer from Jefferson Starship. I'm not saying it should have been the hit that Miracles was, but if you're a fan of Grace Slick and Jefferson Airplane, this song is reassuring because it shows that Grace is going to continue delivering those same big performances. And I will say the rest of the album is pretty good. There's a lot of rock and roll here, despite Miracles being the lead-off single. And there's some cool instrumentals. I'm going to play a clip of one of those instrumentals. This is called Git Fiddler with Papa John Creech on violin. I talked a little bit about Papa John Creech in the last episode, and he was sort of an off-and-on member of the Jefferson Starship in the early years. And a little bit of trivia about this song is that it was co-written by a then 21-year-old Keb Moe. And if you're not familiar, Keb Moe has gone on to be a genuine blues legend. And I guess in these early days, he was a bit of a protege of Papa John. So here is Git Fiddler. Take a listen. Jefferson Starship's third album was called Spitfire. It was released in March 1976. The lead single off of that album was called With Your Love, hit number 12. I am not big on this. I think it's a little too similar to Miracles, which you could probably say about the whole album. Spitfire very much feels like a retread of Red Octopus. Although I will say I do like the opening track, Uh, which is a Marty song called Cruisin'. That's some pretty good rock and roll. But a good indicator of what kind of music is on this album is that the last track on the record is called Love, Lovey, Love. (laughs) Come on. That's too cheesy. That's too much. Now, unfortunately, Love, Lovey, Love was not a good way to describe how the band was getting along at this point in time. Marty Ballin gave just a firecracker of an interview to Crawdaddy Magazine, which got published in January 1977. And this whole interview just speaks to his deep frustration with the band. One of the most famous quotes from the interview is that he says, the starship isn't big enough to keep me busy. And when talking about Grace, he says, she reminds me of my mother. She's not sexy. And later on he says, I never even kissed her. I wouldn't let Grace Slick blow me. (laughs) Oh, man. That is such a low blow. You know, in the VH1 Behind the Music episode about the Jefferson Airplane, Grace Slick admits that she had affairs with every member of the Jefferson Airplane except for Marty. 
And Marty has said in various interviews that Grace tried to hook up with him many times, and he always um, turned her down. She would ultimately sleep with almost every member of the band. Everybody but Marty. So you got to remember, this is the 60s. <laughs> Although they never had sex, Marty says that their performances were as passionate and as heated as any affair. Everybody thought we were married you know, together. Because we made love on stage. I made love to her on stage with my music. I would burn her down, and she loved it. And that may or may not be true. But even if it is true, it seems so out of line to say something like this to a magazine. Especially because they're in a band together. You know, there's no camaraderie here. You know, you're, you're not trying to look out for your, your teammates, basically. Um... And I think that sort of speaks to Marty's personality. And it speaks to how resentful he could be about Grace. Years later, Grace was asked about his remarks in that interview. And she said, maybe he just thinks I'm disgusting. Well, maybe. And maybe he's just a deeply resentful guy. You know, he's saying this at his commercial peak. And also his critical peak, because at this point, most critics who were paying attention to this band were saying he was the only good part of it. And they were right. Grace wasn't delivering the hits, but here he is getting more songs on the radio than Grace and being identified by most rock critics that he's the only good part of the band. But even still, he's not happy and he's taken really low blows at Grace in the press. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. 
and we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Now, the band's fourth album was called Earth, and it was released in February 1978. And the hit off that record is called Count on Me. Take a listen to that. This hit number eight on the charts, and Earth is a very easy listing soft rock type of album. Not bad, but given the last two records they put out, not very ambitious. The hardest rocking song of the record is called Fire, and that's a, another Marty song. Now the tour to support Earth is when the wheels truly came off. So let's set the stage a little bit here. In the May 1978 edition of Rolling Stone, there was this big interview with the whole band Jefferson Starship. And their bassist, Pete Sears, said, quote, Gracie has a problem, a real serious problem. When she gets drunk, the evil forces seem to be able to take over. And a lot of this interview focuses on Grace's struggles with alcoholism. And at the time she said she was handling it, but a disastrous appearance in Germany the very next month, June 1978, proved that that was not the case. Now, according to her book, Grace was not happy about touring. She was unhappy in general. She was unhappy about herself. She wasn't happy with the state of the band. She didn't like the plans for the tour. And in her book, she called the tour, quote, my idea of hell. And that's about right, because the first concert in Germany had to be canceled because Grace fell ill. She had some food poisoning or something, and she just wasn't in any state to go out on stage. And when Paul found out that she wanted to sit out the show, he tried to confront her about it. But that didn't happen because Grace's new husband, Skip, got in between them and insisted that she was not going to show and that they should go on and play without her. And Paul said that they would not play without Grace. And this actually resulted in a fist fight backstage between Paul and Grace's husband. Now, I haven't mentioned Grace's husband at this point because they had recently gotten married, and that was shortly after her and Paul had broken up. So this physical conflict was a little more personal, I think, than about uh, Grace not wanting to go on stage. So Paul insisted that they cancel, And when it was announced to the crowd that the band was not coming on stage, the fans rioted and burned the place down, (laughs) which was not good press for the band and not a good omen for things to come. Now, the next night was going to be in Hamburg, and the concert was going to be recorded for the famous Rock Palast TV show concert series. And Grace was feeling much better. And insisted she would be okay to play the show. But before the show started, she got absolutely 
annihilated drunk. And when they finally dragged her on stage, in between songs, she tried to provoke the audience by saying such things as, Who won the war? And doing the Heil Hitler salute. And just calling the audience Nazis. <laughs> That's called me getting really ripped on alcohol and deciding I was going to let the Germans know that I still didn't like the Second World War. Who won the war? I have a hard Grace was like attacking the audience. She began to, you, you know, call them names and, you know, derogatory things. Grace apparently had a very strong dislike of Germany because of World War II. And you got to remember here, 1978 was only 33 years removed from the end of the war. So World War II wasn't like ancient history at this point. And a quote from her book that speaks to this is she said, I didn't like pandering to Nazi offspring. So she was not happy to be playing the show at all, and she got ridiculously drunk and took out her frustrations on the crowd. And I gotta say, this does not reflect well on her at all. This is one of many personal low points Grace had because of alcohol. And her quote that says it all about that event was in the book about the Jefferson Airplane she's quoted as saying, that's what that night was about, dumb drunken decisions and if you've read the book Got a Revolution by Jeff Tamarkin this might recall another story from earlier in the book about how Grace got super drunk during a fundraiser concert for the Whitney Museum in the late 60s and got on stage and just ripped into the audience saying, Hello, you fools. You got Rembrandts on the mantle and a Rolls in the garage, but your old man wouldn't know a clitoris from a junk bond if you had the guts to show him your twat in the first place. <laughs> Which is just a wild sentence, you know? And it's a reminder here, this instance and the show in 1978, is that Grace's nickname is the Acid Queen. And that's because she has a very sharp tongue, particularly when drinking. Needless to say, the show was a disaster, the band was humiliated, and Grace would be sent home to get sober. Now she says she was so disgusted with herself that she decided to quote fire herself and proceed as a solo artist from then on. And I will say that despite some genuine efforts on her part to get sober, it's unfortunate but Grace would continue to struggle with alcohol for years to come. Now as far as this tour goes, the band would finish the tour with just Marty as the vocalist. And, surprisingly, the rest of the tour was fairly well-reviewed. And some would think Marty could maybe carry the band on his own. But that would not be enough for Marty. His foot was halfway out the door at this point. 
The last major thing that the Jefferson Starship did in 1978 was they recorded a song and also an appearance for, of all things, the Star Wars Holiday Special, which aired in November 1978. Now, super nerds will know what this is. The Star Wars Holiday Special was a notoriously bad made-for-TV movie that featured the main actors of the original Star Wars cast. You can find it on YouTube. It's just absolute garbage. But one of the weirdest parts of this movie is that the Jefferson Starship shows up and they play a song called Light the Sky on Fire, which had been written specifically for the show. So here's a clip of that song, Light the Sky on Fire. This would be the final release from this first version of the Jefferson Starship because Marty would quit the band right around this time. He felt it was time to go after Grace's breakdown in Germany. He felt this was the end of the band. He felt he had overstayed his welcome. He did not enjoy what was going on in the band, and he thought this was a good time to step out. Now, in the Behind the Music episode about Jefferson Airplane, he complained at this point that nobody tried to get him to stay. Nobody begged him not to leave. And he took that as an affront. Now, I think that's a little dramatic, but whatever. More importantly is that I don't think his departure at this point was actually a bad thing. I think he was sort of right. I think this lineup had run its course. And for the Jefferson Starship to stay truly relevant, it needed new energy. It needed something that was going to propel them into the 80s. And what would that something be? We're going to find out after the break, because now it is time for us to take a short break and look at some recent headlines from the world of classic rock. This is a segment I call Yesterday's News. Okay, not exactly yesterday's news, but here are some recent stories in my classic rock newspaper. First up, David Lee Roth cancels his Vegas residency. If you didn't know, David Lee Roth had announced a few Las Vegas dates for early January 2022. Before he even announced them, he said he wanted to be the king of Las Vegas. And when he finally rolled out the dates, he announced that these were going to be retirement gigs. He said this was going to be his last run, this stretch of Vegas states. It was sort of unfinished business from a Las Vegas residency that he did in January 2020. I saw one of those shows, and I talk about that brief residency in an early podcast episode, which you should check out. He was originally booked to do Vegas dates in January and March of 2020. He did the January dates, and as he was Waiting to do the March dates, he toured with KISS briefly in February and early March 2020. But as the COVID pandemic started to take effect, he had to cancel his March 2020 Vegas dates. So I think this plan to do Vegas in January 2022 was meant to make up for those dates he had canceled because of COVID. And unfortunately, the reason that these dates now have to be canceled, is, quote, 
Due to unforeseen circumstances related to COVID and out of an abundance of caution for those working and attending the shows, they had to be canceled. Which is a true bummer. Not rescheduled, not postponed, canceled. And he has no dates booked in the future. Now, he later released a statement to EW.com, quote, Future shows? When the benefit concerts for Colorado, Farm Aid, and hospital workers, quote, everywhere come up, call me. So he's not totally slamming the door on doing live performances from here on out, but it does appear that he will not be concluding what he originally set out to do in Las Vegas. And I hate to say this, and I could be wrong, but as I believe with Ozzy, I think it's likely that Dave's touring days are probably over. All right, moving on. Neil Sean from Journey explains why Jeff Scott Soto was fired after their 2007 tour. Now, this might not be particularly interesting for most people, but I think it's interesting because I, I met Jeff Scott Soto once. Jeff Scott Soto was Journey's vocalist in 2008 and 2007, and... He was released from the band after the 07 tour, and apparently he was never given an explanation for why. And he said recently in an interview, quote, The problem is, I don't know. That's the problem. If I knew what the problem was, if I knew the reason why I got fired, then at least I could be at peace with it. I could find a way to discuss or talk about it. But I'm not legally supposed to talk about it. I was never given a proper reason. The only thing I was told is that they had a change of heart. It didn't make sense to me. Now... Neil Sean is a particularly online guy, so in the Facebook comments, he responded, and he said, quote, Steve Augeri's voice gave out. We were in the middle of Def Leppard tour, so I was working with Jeff on a side project and suggested he come in and help finish the tour. It went well, but all were not sold on him being the lead singer after writing a tune and listening. Both John and I agreed it didn't sound right, or better put, what we wanted. I hope this satisfies this ongoing drama. It didn't work out. Fair enough. That's a reasonable response. They didn't think his voice fit properly for Journey. And they were right, because firing Jeff made room for Arnell, who has proved to be the absolute right fit for the band. So, hopefully... This is enough for Jeff to have some peace about it. Now, I bring this up because, like I said earlier, I met Jeff once, and that was uh, because Jeff sings with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra now. And in 2009, I saw TSO, and after the show, they were signing autographs. So I went to get my tour program signed. And when I got to him, I asked him to sign my program, Don't Stop Believin', because I knew he had sang with Journey in 06 and 07. <laughs> He groaned and said, you can't be serious. And I insisted that I was, so he signed it, but he did not look happy. <laughs> it's just sort of a funny little memory I have. I guess in 2009, that was still a pretty fresh wound. So if you're out there, Jeff, I, I do apologize if I annoyed you that day, but you know, I'm sure you're fine now. get back to the main story segment two so the fifth album from jefferson starship was called freedom at point zero and that was released in november 1979 and this would be the first album 
with their new lead vocalist, Mickey Thomas. Now, we are going to talk a lot more about Mickey in our next episode. All I'll say here now is that at the time, Mickey was not actually a fan of the Jefferson Starship, and he was very hesitant to join. So I'm going to play a clip of an interview he did with Living Legends Music in 2008, where he talked about his perception of the Jefferson Starship and why he was hesitant to sign on. I knew of them. I was not a fan of the music or anything, you know, because, like I said, that was a, another world from the Elvin Bishop. I mean, all I knew about them at that point in time was mostly it was like a soap opera. You know, you'd see them on the cover of Rolling Stone, and it would be Grace is fighting with Marty, and Marty's fighting with Paul, and Paul's trying to beat up the lighting guy because he's sleeping with Grace. And, and you know, and, the, and most of the songs, the hits, were all these kind of soft ballads like, you know, Count on Me and Run Away and With Your Love and, and you know, not exactly my cup of tea musically. But they decided to give me a call and see how it would work. So they called me, and I said, well, that's kind of weird, but... What have I got to lose? I'll come over and we sat down, we had a meeting in Paul Kantner's living room and we talked and they played me a few songs and we jammed a little bit. And, and I just really, honestly, I was, there were no politics. I was not playing games with them, but I honestly, in my heart, I just didn't know if I really wanted to do that. Cause you know, I had people telling me on the one hand too, oh, that band's a dinosaur. And this is in the late seventies <laughs> and they were a dinosaur. <laughs> Isn't that interesting, <laughs> you know? Like, they had that sort of reputation, that they were drama-filled and also sort of long in the tooth. But now that Marty and Grace were out, maybe he thought some of that drama would leave with them. And his time in the Jefferson Starship would definitely change their sound. Jefferson Starship from here on out would be much more, I would say, corporate rock like Journey, Foreigner, Styx, REO Speedwagon, those kind of bands. And that's not an insult, you know? Corporate rock is just a derogatory term for arena rock that was very popular in the late 70s and early 80s. And Jefferson Starship in this era was very much part of that genre. Now, the big hit off of Freedom at Point Zero was the song, Jane. This hit number 14 on the charts, and unfortunately, it would be the band's last really big hit, because this was a big hit. And I gotta say, this is probably their best song. This might be the best song from the entire Jefferson Airplane family tree. It was written by David Freiberg, and it was recording this song that convinced Mickey that he wanted to be in the band full-time. This was the flashpoint where he felt this was going to be a good fit. Now, I will say the rest of the album is okay. I believe Mickey should have been the sole lead vocalist right out of the gates, but most of his songs are on side B, and Paul steps forward a little bit more on this record. Maybe that's because it was a transitional record, and maybe Paul didn't trust him to have the full spotlight just yet. Now, Grace Slick resumed her solo career and released her second solo album, which was called Dreams, in March 1980. Now, there are beautiful, soaring vocals through this whole album. The record, to me, sounds like an epic film soundtrack, which is the type of music that Grace loves. And in her book, she said she enjoyed working on this album because she likes writing alone. 
When it comes to lyrics, she prefers writing those on her own instead of collaborating, and this album allowed her to do that. So take a listen to the title track from that record. This is called Dreams. Jeff Tamarkin's book, Got a Revolution, Grace says, quote, Dreams is more orchestral and the lyrics are concerned with the business of getting sober and how that's going to be and what does it require to be there. This is the solo album that Grace believes is her best. I absolutely agree. And I gotta say, if you're a fan of the Jefferson Airplane Family Tree, this is one of those solo records that really should be in your collection. It's a very good record all the way through and the vocal performances are among grace's best ever now her next solo album welcome to the wrecking ball was released in january 1981 and i like the title track uh, quite a bit so here take a quick listen to this killers on the street talking jailbirds getting mistreated you want to get treated well welcome to the wrecking ball yeah a little different right This is not the same orchestral vibe of Dreams. This is more of a hard rock record. At least Side A is. And outside of this title track, unfortunately, I don't think Side A is very good. Side B is a little less heavy, a little more consistent with what she had been doing in the Jefferson Starship, and I think it's actually much better. So if you have this record in your collection, listen to Side B. (laughs) Now here's something you didn't know. Grace is featured on a track by Rick James. Yeah, Grace sang backing vocals on a song called She Blew My Mind 69 Times from Rick James's 1982 Throwin' Down album. That's the album with the cover where he looks like Conan the Barbarian on the front. It's a good record, and this is a really cool song, actually. And it's not like she just delivered vocals that are lost in the mix. She gets a little shout-out in the song. So I'm going to play a clip and listen closely here. You're going to hear Grace sing, Did I hear you say she broke your heart? And then Rick responds, You heard me right, Grace Slick. You heard me right. Did I hear you say she broke your heart? You heard me right, Grace Slick. You heard me right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, how cool is that? <laughs> you know, Rick James knows talent. You got to give him that. He knows who to get for stuff, and I just get a total kick out of that. So, throwing down the album, the song, She Blew My Mind 69 Times. A unexpected but very cool appearance from Grace Slick. Now, the Jefferson Starship's sixth album, and their first of the 80s, was called Modern Times, and it was released in April 1981. At this point, Grace had reconciled with some of the guys in the band and returned in a reduced role singing mostly melodies and backing vocals. This album is another hard rock release, and I gotta say it's a good album. Find Your Way Back is the lead-off single, and it's one of the band's best songs, so I'm gonna play a quick clip of that. Find your way back Find your way back Yeah, I really like this track. And the closing track of the album is called Stairway to Cleveland, which is a very funny song. 
it is very fun to hear the whole band shout, fuck you, we do what we want. <laughs> That's that sort of uh, 60s rock and roll spirit that was still alive in this incarnation of the band. So definitely one of their better records here. Now, Marty did not return to the fold. He was launching his solo career in May 1981 with an album called Ballad. Simple enough. Now, the lead-off single for Ballon was a song called Hearts, which was a decent hit. Hit number eight on the charts. And take a listen to that. Here's Hearts by Marty Ballon. soft rock vibe he was doing in his time with Jefferson Starship, but the rest of the album is a little heavier than this. The rest of the album I would describe as corporate rock. Closer to arena rock than yacht rock. Not terribly different from the new lineup of Jefferson Starship. The whole album to me is better than I expect, and there's one track on there in particular called Spotlight that I like quite a bit, so don't judge a record by its cover, because it definitely looks like a very soft, loungy type of record but this is surprisingly good now jefferson starship put out an album called winds of change in october 1982 the title track winds of change is excellent it's a duet between mickey and grace and it's a good indicator of what would become a very successful formula in later years so here take a listen to winds of change the beast is As far as the rest of the album goes, most of the music is sang by Mickey Thomas, which is good. And unfortunately, this really wasn't a commercial success, but I still like this album a lot. So we haven't heard a Grace Jefferson Starship song in a while, so I'm going to play one of her songs from this album. This is called Out of Control. I think this is a good example of Jefferson Starship 2.0 Grace. And also the title and song lyrics are very appropriate for Grace. Out of control. Here, take a listen. I have no mental problems. I didn't let anybody tell you. It's out of control. She has another track on the album called Black a Widow, which is also a very cool song. So despite it not being a big hit, Winds of Change is one I would definitely recommend. A couple months after that, Marty Ballon released his second solo album. This was called Lucky in February 1983. This was unfortunately not a hit. And also, unfortunately, much more adult contemporary, sort of that soft rock music you would expect from a Marty album. I wouldn't say this is a bad record, but it's not particularly interesting. Later in 1983, Paul Kantner released a solo album. Now, he did not leave Jefferson Starship. I guess he just felt that this album wasn't going to be a good fit for the Jefferson Starship, and he would do it as a solo project, and he was right. The album is called Planet Earth Rock and Roll Orchestra, which (laughs) is a lot right off the bat. Obviously, this was not a hit record. If you remember what we talked about in the last episode when we covered some of Paul's mid-70s solo albums, this is much more in line with what those were. Those were concept albums. So was this one. But it's not bad. I wasn't a fan of those 70s ones, 
But I, I like this one. I enjoyed the music here, although it is pretty goofy. Here's a song called Circle of Fire. Yeah, this is a fun song. Like I said, it's kind of a goofy album. It reminds me of Kilroy Was Here by Styx or Trans by Neil Young. If you like that weird sort of sci-fi 80s rock, this fits in pretty well with those. Not the most important record you ever heard, but if you liked what he was doing in the 70s, a solo artist, this is the album that fits in more with that than anything he was doing with Jefferson Starship. Now, Grace was back in the band, but she had not abandoned her solo career at this point. She put out an album called Software in January 1984. This would be her final solo album ever. And I'm going to play a clip from the lead-off track called Call It Right, Call It Wrong. I love this song, but the lyrics here really needed a rewrite. And unfortunately, they stick out like a sore thumb, so it's kind of a hit and miss song. And I would say that's a good way to describe the solo record as a whole, because there are both good and bad tracks. And I'm sure a lot of old school Jefferson Airplane fans would tell you it's all bad, because this is a new wave style synth record driven by Grace's new collaborator, a producer named Peter Wolf. Not Peter Wolf from the Jay Giles Band. This is a German producer who made a lot of uh, synth music. Grace heard some of his work and became very infatuated with the potential of synthesizer music and just went in full steam ahead and put this album together. But unfortunately, it didn't really pay off because it wasn't a big hit. Now, in her book, she says, quote, Did my solo albums sell? No. If I'd been willing to go on the road to promote them, they might have fared better. But I was unwilling to go out and do a half-assed airplane set in order to sell records. And that's probably right. She didn't really have any iconic music videos, and if she wasn't going to back up her own solo album, she wasn't giving fans a reason to buy it. She didn't even do these songs as part of Jefferson Starship concerts. So I think a lot of fans didn't even know she was doing solo work. So the final album for the original run of Jefferson Starship was released in May 1984. It was called Nuclear Furniture. And this would be the last Jefferson Starship album of the Mickey Thomas Grace Slick era. Basically, there were two factions in the band at this point, and they were tearing themselves apart. Paul Kantner and David Freiberg and Pete Sears wanted to take the band in a different direction than Mickey, Grace, and Craig Chicaso. Paul and his faction wanted to make Jefferson Starship albums in the spirit of the records they did with Marty Ballin in the 70s, where they would score just enough of a hit to stay on the radio, but they would cater to their longtime fans and play smaller venues to the fans they've already established and that sort of community that they've built, you know, going back to their airplane days. Mickey and Grace 
And Craig Chicaso wanted to keep getting bigger and better. They wanted big radio hits, even if that meant not writing their own songs. And a band can't go forward with visions this divergent because they're almost polar opposites. And Paul was becoming very angry with the internal politics of the band because he was used to getting his way. But now more and more, Grace, who had always supported him in the past, was siding more with Mickey and Craig. So Paul felt that the Jefferson Starship was his band, but the band was doing things that he did not want to do. Paul actually um, was really annoyed at the band for um, selling out commercially. I found the commercial direction of the band pathetic and uh, inordinately inane, but the tide was overwhelming. And as they were putting together this nuclear furniture album, his songs were being left on the cutting room floor, and he was sort of losing his mind over it. And near the end of the recording sessions, Paul straight up hijacked the album master tapes and drove off with them and held them hostage until the band agreed to mix the album more to his liking so he could fit another one of his songs on the record. It was an appropriate title for the album Nuclear Furniture because this was like the nuclear option. <laughs> Paul couldn't handle the fact that his band did not back him. Even the guys who agreed with his vision for the band weren't particularly vocal about it, so he was kind of on an island. And when he came back into the studio with the tapes, you know, he had a band meeting, and he put out his vision for how the band should proceed through the 80s, and basically he wanted to do one more album with them and then retire the name, and everybody disagreed. So they put the album out, and he quit as soon as it was released. Now, I will say the main problem with this album is that it sounds noticeably disjointed, which is probably the biggest problem with the whole Mickey Thomas Jefferson Starship era. Paul is a very interesting songwriter. He's got very interesting lyrics and some fun ideas, but they did not fit in at all with what the rest of the band was doing. So when you listen to this era of Jefferson Starship and this album in particular... When you get to Paul Kantner songs, they stick out like a sore thumb, and they don't really fit on the rest of the album. So you can kind of see why he was so frustrated. So they put the album out. Paul does, like, a handful of shows with them and then quits. And this departure was extremely contentious because they were continuing on as Jefferson Starship. And he wasn't about to just surrender that name to them. So he filed a lawsuit and tried to get them to stop using the name Jefferson Starship. Grace, to my great disappointment, went with what became the Starship eventually. And we built this city on rock and roll. Yeah, right. <laughs> you didn't build the city. And that was harder. That was more of a split between uh, uh, Paul and myself. You know, a lot of people say, how is it when your parents separated? And I say, you know, it's not... That time was really easy compared to the time when... Um, my father left the band. It got really ugly. Now, during this time, David Freiberg would leave shortly after. Ultimately, he agreed with Paul. He did not like the idea of chasing radio success. He wanted to make music more organically. 
and he was also unhappy with how much the band was fighting. And Grace and Mickey were just fine with him walking out as well because they felt his contributions to the band had been on the decline. As we've seen before, you know, this breakup was appropriately timed. Like, the band was not going to get better with this internal division as it was. As they battled with Paul and Court, Grace and Mickey decided to continue on as Starship, along with Craig Chikeso and Grace's producer, Peter Wolf. The lawsuit would ultimately be settled in 1985 with Grace as the primary owner of the band, but said band could not use the words Jefferson or Airplane in the name. So the band was just rechristened Starship. All of that's not a big deal because for almost the entire run of Jefferson Starship, the Starship was sort of shorthand for the band. That's how they referred to it anyway. So it wasn't a big deal for Grace and Mickey to change the name to just Starship. And we will talk about the Starship years in our next episode, which will be the final episode looking back at the Jefferson Airplane family tree. So this is where Grace and Mickey depart our story. Paul, on the other hand, decided to reconnect with some of his old airplane buddies. He got in touch with Marty Ballin, whose solo career was dead in the water at this point, and they talked about doing an album together. And as it turned out, Hot Tuna was on hiatus, so bassist Jack Cassidy had some free time. And those three guys got together and put together a band, an album, called the KBC Band, Kantner, Balin, Cassidy Band, and released an album in October 1986. Now, this was much more Paul's vision for a band. It's a very politically-themed rock album so i'll play a clip from that album this is a song called america which is a cool track it's got some good sax action and that is going to play us into our next break which takes a look back at some of the biggest headlines history of classic rock for a segment i call back in time so take it away kbc band here's america January 13th, 1962, Chubby Checker hits number one with his song, The Twist, again. This song hits number one on the charts two years after the first time it hit number one on Billboard in September 1960. A a song so great, it hit number one twice. And if all the music ever recorded, I am absolutely okay with this being uh, a song to do just that. It was bumped out of the number one spot, unfortunately, by a much inferior song called Peppermint Twist by Joey D and the Starlighters. 
All right. January 20th, 1982. Ozzy Osbourne bites the head off of a dead bat that was thrown at him during a performance in Des Moines, Iowa. So this is a story that sort of harkens back to a story I talked about in an earlier podcast where he bit the head off of a live dove. This is somehow even grosser, biting the head off of a dead bat. Supposedly, he thought it was a prop or a toy made out of rubber. And I will play a clip from an interview he did with Night Flight in 1982 in which he discusses the incident. Some guy went at one gig on the last tour through a bat on stage. And, and every night we do a gig, you get all these crazy people that come and throw these, this junk on stage. And, you know, I thought it was one of these rubber bats. I picked it up. It was a real bat. You know, was it alive? Well, it was till I bit the head of it, you know. I mean, the taste of bats is very salty. Tastes of salt. Tastes like anything else? Well, yes, but I can't really say that on the air, can I, really? No. All right. January 17, 1992. Free Jack, starring Mick Jagger, is released to theaters. Free Jack is a hilariously bad sci-fi movie featuring Mick as a time-traveling bounty hunter. (laughs) This is just good old-fashioned stunt casting. The rest of the main cast is made up of Emilio Estevez, Rene Russo, and Anthony Hopkins, which makes you think this might have been some big Hollywood blockbuster, but from what I understand, this was sort of a flop. And like I said, this is not a good movie if you've ever seen it, but it is very fun to see Mick as like some... Boba Fett of this film's universe. (laughs) I don't think the writers trusted him very much because most of his lines are only one sentence. It's not a particularly good movie, but I do get a kick out of watching Mick act. So, here's a clip from the trailer. Tell me who's behind all this. I'm sorry. But I can't tell you that. died, Jewel. Someone paid to bring him back. Welcome to my mind. Don't resist. Lose your mind and you can live forever. Free Jack. I can't say I recommend it, but if you do watch it, you'll probably enjoy seeing Mick Hammond up. All right, moving forward a little more recently, January 20th, 2012, Etta James dies of leukemia at age 73. So Etta James is a profoundly important figure in American music. She is a huge influence on rock and roll. And if you live in the Midwest or if you're traveling to Chicago at any point, I would really recommend you go visit Willie Dixon's Blues Heaven in Chicago. It's the old Chess Records building. It's bought by Willie Dixon's family, and they've turned it into a museum about Chess Records and Chicago Blues, which is the music scene that Etta comes out of. Now, unfortunately, Etta, like many artists at Chess, did not have a good experience with that record label because, of course, it was run by crooks. But she made some amazing music during her time there and after. And if you've ever seen the film Cadillac Records, which is loosely based on the Chess Records story, I can tell you that Beyonce's performance as Etta is not accurate. 
<laughs> in Cadillac Records, Etta is supposed to have an affair with like the guy who owns the record label. That is absolutely not true to real life. Etta did not have a good experience with chess. Because again, it's a real crooked operation. So if you watch the movie Cadillac Records, keep that in mind. Okay, and to play us out, I'm not going to play a song that is from chess i think that'd be a little too obvious i'm gonna go way deeper this is how i first got introduced to her music as you know i'm a big fan of joe walsh well etta james and joe walsh teamed up for a tv special that was released to home video called jump the blues away in 1988 joe came out and played a couple of his songs then etta came out and played her songs with joe on guitar this is an etta song called blues don't care featuring joe walsh on guitar so here's Blues don't care in memory of the great Eddie James. The blues don't care. The blues don't care. The blues don't care about you. Don't care about you. All right, final segment. Let's ramp this up. So, as we talked about in the last episode, the Jefferson Airplane reunited for an album and tour in 1989. And after that tour was over, Jefferson Airplane broke up, and that is the end of the Jefferson Airplane story. Jack and Yorma went back to Hot Tuna, and Grace retired from the road. So, Paul, disappointed that he couldn't continue on as Jefferson Airplane, decided to relaunch Jefferson Starship instead in 1992. And like I said, he would do it without Grace, who retired at this point. And he would also do it without Mickey, who took over in Starship in 1989 when Grace left. And Mickey owns that band now. And Mickey has not performed with Paul since 1984. When Paul quit the band, that was the end of the relationship between him and Mickey. Instead, they would bring on drummer Prairie Prince, most famous for his time with the Tubes, and Prairie's wife, Diana Mangano, who would sing Grace's songs. And after a little while, Paul coaxed Marty Ballon back into the fold as well. Now, he didn't put out an album right away, and Marty did not abandon his solo career either. In fact, Marty put out a solo album called Freedom Flight in 1997. Now, much like his previous solo albums this is another soft rock record with a couple of decent tracks and i don't mean any disrespect by this but this is probably the most disposable of all the records i've covered today this is not an essential listen i will play a clip from it just so you get an idea of what marty was doing at this time this is a song called fire Okay, so this next generation of Jefferson Starship released their first album, Windows of Heaven, in February 1999. I think it was released a little earlier in Germany, but the U.S. version of the record was put out in 1999. And this is Paul's vision for the band. The songs are his eccentric, political, lyrically dense albums featuring strong female backing vocals alongside Marty's love ballads. Not a particularly 
great album. I don't dislike it, I would say. There's some interesting stuff here. For instance, I'm going to play probably the best part of the whole album. This is from the title track, Windows of Heaven. Listen to some of Paul's lyrics here. The windows of heaven So that's a fun little moment. <laughs> and I gotta say, I've been critical of Paul today, but I gotta reiterate that I like Paul, as a songwriter especially. No one writes lyrics like Paul Kantner, and that is a great example of what I'm talking about. I can't picture another songwriter ever writing something like that. So for my criticisms, you know, don't let it be said, I do appreciate what he does, and I'm glad he insists on getting his music on records because you get great little moments just like that. Moving forward to September 29th, 2001, Grace Slick makes her final onstage appearance with Jefferson Starship. Okay, so the story here is that this is just two weeks after 9-11, okay? And it's at a show in Long Beach, California. Now, if you weren't there, you have to remember that the aftermath of 9-11 had the entire country in a very weird spot. There was a mood going on. And what Grace did in this show sort of speaks to that mood. So don't judge until you've heard the whole story here. So near the end of the show, Grace comes out on stage in a burqa. And as the music is playing, she just kind of creeps around the band. And at the end of the song, she rips off the burqa and unveils a different outfit underneath made with a big American flag across her front and a large cloth across her back with the words, fuck fear, stitched into it. So as soon as she unveils herself, she says, quote, the outfit is not about Islam. It's about oppression. This flag is not about politics. It's about liberty. Well, no, Grace, it's not that simple. <laughs> That's a good disclaimer, but you are sending some very clear political messages with that sort of stunt. And this sort of thing hasn't exactly aged well. But like I said, the whole country was in a weird place in this immediate aftermath of 9-11 so i don't think it's worth anyone getting outraged about and i actually kind of like that she did this because to me it's a fitting end to a long onstage career full of absolutely outrageous moments do you remember what i was the stories i talked about earlier about how she called germans nazis in 1978 and how she, uh, you know, insulted rich donors at the Whitney Museum in the late 60s. You know, there are stories about her flashing the crowd. In the last episode, we had saying motherfucker on live TV and doing blackface on the Smothers Brothers. She had a wild career full of outrageous moments. And the Jefferson Airplane Reunion Tour in 1989 and also the Starship tours she did in the late 80s, she was in professional mode and didn't have any crazy incidents you know she did it right and you know that's a credit to her in the for those last years but it's also a little too neat and tidy for grace grace is a wild card the fact that you could go to a show and have a good chance of seeing her get like she sings, out of control, is a dynamic factor that was missing from her last couple of years as an onstage performer. And I don't think this final appearance with Jefferson Starship is particularly controversial. 
My biggest problem with the stunt is that she did not sing lead on anything. She's got the outfit, people are going crazy about it, and she had an opportunity to sing, but she chose not to, and I'm sure that was her decision. I'm sure the band begged her to sing, but uh, she has been very firm about not doing that since she's retired. Okay, let's move forward a couple of years here. Their 10th album, Jefferson's Tree of Liberty, is released in September 2008. From the title alone, I'm sure you can figure out that this is an overtly political record. All of the tracks here are covers of traditional protest songs, which I gotta say is a very cool idea for Paul Kantner's longtime hippie fans. This is a good old-fashioned folk record. And... Despite the release date of fall 2008, this has nothing to do with the 2008 presidential election. This originated as some weird-ass protest record that Paul wanted to record in Cuba, and Paul had to be told by the United States State Department that he was not allowed to record in fucking Cuba. (laughs) And he wanted to do that because Paul has a very strong interest in Latin American politics, He spent some time with the Sandinistas in the mid-80s. Truly insane. I don't have enough time to talk about it, but Paul had very hardcore left-wing politics. So doing a protest album like this in September of 2008, you might think, oh, they were doing like an Obama thing like so many other artists uh, were doing at the time. This is not the case. Now, at the time, Marty Ballin wanted to do a more classic Jefferson Starship kind of record, but when he found out this was not going to be the case, he had some family issues going on, so he elected not to participate in recording the album. Diana Mangano also left the band. Her husband, Prairie, stuck along just long enough to finish the drum tracks, but once the recording process was done, he quit as well. Now, David Freiberg had been welcomed back into the fold in 2005, so he would step up and replace Marty on lead vocals. And Diana was replaced with vocalist Kathy Richardson. Kathy was a protege of songwriter Jim Peterick, and although much younger than all of them, she has some close connections to that Peace and Love 60s generation because she played Janis Joplin in an off-Broadway musical called Love Janis in 2001. And later on, she would actually tour with Janice's old band, Big Brother and the Holding Company, in the early 2010s. And we're going to talk about Kathy more in just a little bit. First, I'm going to play a clip from this album. You know, we've done a lot of podcast episodes about Bob Dylan over this past year, so here's a clip of the Jefferson Starship featuring Kathy Richardson singing Bob Dylan's Chimes of Freedom. Electric lights still Jefferson Starship album to feature Paul Cantor, but not the last album from Paul. In 2010 and 2011, he released a pair of albums called The Windowpane Collectives. Volume 1, A Martian Christmas, was released in 2010, and it features some covers of Christmas songs alongside some sci-fi-themed originals, which sounds pretty fucking weird, but you have to remember how much Paul loves science fiction. And this really fits in well with his solo work. 
blows against the Empire in the 70s. Planet Earth rock and roll orchestra in the 80s. Now, A Martian Christmas. Thematically, Paul's love of science fiction connects all these works together. Now, Volume 2 was called Venusian Love Songs, and that was released in 2011. This album is made primarily of covers and mashups of classic rock love songs. And when I say mashups, uh, here's an example. The first song of the album is Kathy Richardson singing the opening part of U2's Pride in the Name of Love, mashed up with Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech set to the instrumental music of Jefferson Starship's old hit, Miracles. Okay, now that sounds like a lot, so I think it would make a little more more sense if I play you a clip of that song. And that should give you an idea of the rest of the music that's here. a little different but you know this whole project is basically a celebration of the music that paul loves there's another bob dylan cover here there's a beatles cover this is paul playing the music that he loves and to me it is a very fitting conclusion to paul's solo career as a whole and it's probably the least known aspect of the entire jefferson airplane family tree but just because of how unique it is, I think it's worth checking out. Now, sadly, Paul Kantner passed away on January 28th, 2016. And just two and a half years later, Marty Ballin passed away on September 27th, 2018. Now, Paul's death did not mark the end of the Jefferson Starship. And that's because the Jefferson Starship is now led by Kathy Richardson and David Freiberg. Kathy and David have been given the official blessing from Paul before he passed away and Grace to continue on as the Jefferson Starship from here on out. And they have been touring regularly since Paul passed. And they even put out a new album called Mother of the Sun, released in August 2020. I'm going to play a clip from that album. This is the lead-off single called It's About Time. This was co-written by Kathy Richardson and Grace Slick. So take a listen to this. It's about time, it's about time, it's about time. It's about, it's about life. It's about seeing the world we've got to unite now. Yeah, it's fantastic. And it's so cool to know that Grace contributed to the lyrics. And Grace contributed to the lyrics because, again, she loves Kathy. She's really happy with what the band is now. She's given them her complete blessing. And if you can see Jefferson Starship, you should absolutely take the opportunity to do so. Especially because if you see him, it's probably not going to be a very expensive ticket. I saw this lineup of the Jefferson Starship at the Waukesha County Fair in 2019. David Freiberg sings all of the songs that Mickey or Marty would have sang. But he's 80 and still rocking. You know, he's older than the guys in the Stones, and he's still kicking ass. 
And it was very cool to see him do that. But to be clear, this is really Kathy's band now. She's the focal point of the group, and that's a big positive because she is a fantastic frontwoman. She's also a great songwriter, and I'm really glad that she's finally taken the opportunity to write some music under the mantle of Jefferson Starship. And she is an important part of the band's not just history, but now she's going to be what keeps the band moving forward. So if you're an old-time fan that misses that Grace Slick factor, Kathy Richardson steps into that role better than anybody, and she also makes it her own. So I would really encourage you to see the Jefferson Starship. And for what it's worth, they play music from all eras of the Jefferson Airplane family tree, even Starship. They had to wait for Paul to pass away to do some of the Starship songs, but, you know, I'm sure he's fine with it. And it's fair that the Jefferson Starship does Starship songs because Mickey Thomas's Starship does Jefferson Airplane songs and Marty Ballin Jefferson Starship songs. So both groups do music from all eras, and that's a positive for the fans because it means you have now even more chances to see hits from all eras of this big family tree. And there's a lot of people like me who love all of the eras and want to see all those hits in concert. So I'm glad that they're doing that now. All right, let's wrap up here with just some final thoughts. You know, I think the Jefferson Starship is underrated. I didn't expect to like most of this music going into it because in all my years of collecting records, you know, the Jefferson Starship records are the ones that you always find in the bargain bins. Unfortunately, these albums have really not gone up in value as time has gone on in the way that some other classic records has. But if you're a record collector, that's actually not a negative because that means they're available for you to go out and get. And they're not junk records. There's so much good music in this era. It just was never truly top of the charts. I would describe it as a really good middle ground between the cultural significance of the Jefferson Airplane and what I would call the unapologetic commercialism of Starship, which we'll talk about in our next episode. And that's not an insult, by the way. So I hope we covered something you enjoyed here. I think you should definitely look into the Jefferson Starship. If you want to know a starting point, my favorite stuff is the early 80s records they recorded with Mickey Thomas. But if you like Marty Ballin, I think you'll enjoy the stuff he was doing with them in the early 70s. And if you're a folk fan and you want to hear some protest music, check out that Jefferson's Tree of Liberty. Some really interesting stuff there, too. And, of course, it's very cool to see that they're still rocking today. Hopefully we'll get new music from this Kathy Richardson era. All right, looking forward to the next stuff we have coming up. As I mentioned earlier, the conclusion to this Jefferson Airplane Family Tree series we're doing will be a deep dive on Starship and Mickey Thomas. After that, we're going to explore the life and career of Ronnie Spector, who recently passed away, so that will be in memoriam to her. As I previously said, we're going to do an episode of Wang Chung. As uh, lead singer of Wang Chung, Jack Hughes was a recent guest on this podcast. We're going to do a deep dive into that discography. And we are absolutely going to get back on track with the Dylan Through the Decades miniseries. We have part five coming up, Bob Dylan in the 2000s. I'm going to be setting up a time with Chris to do that very soon. So you can look forward to hearing that pretty soon as well. The intro song for this podcast is I Can Play That Rock and Roll by Joe Walsh. That's where we get the name of the podcast. And I have to recommend and cite the books Got a Revolution 
The Turbulent Flight of Jefferson Airplane by Jeff Tamarkin. It's the only book you truly need if you want to know the history of the Jefferson Airplane and the Jefferson Starship. But I also would recommend Somebody to Love by Grace Slick. Those are her memoirs, and it's one of my favorite rock autobiographies. And, if you can find it, the VH1 Behind the Music episode about Jefferson Airplane is really good. Not just for the airplane years, but for the Jefferson Starship years as well. That episode actually has some footage from Grace's disastrous appearance in Germany in 1978. So, if you can track that down, I would recommend watching that. Finally, I'm just going to give a, a thank you for Jack Hughes for that intro, which we'll be using from here on out. And since this is a podcast about classic rock, the song that's going to play us out is called Rock Music, and it's from the Jefferson Starship album Freedom at Point Zero. So take it away with some rock music. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this, that means you did that one already. Thank you. Your time is valuable, and there is an infinite amount of content out there. So you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend the show to family, friends, or anyone you know looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in subreddits, Facebook groups, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Play That Podcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash play that podcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash play that rock and roll. Lots of great supplemental material, like photos and vlogs, on all three platforms. As Play That Rock and Roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four, please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal, because it gives me something I can point to when pitching the show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chances I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here on this show. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories of music from the world of classic rock.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 